was thinking the other day just about how fast life goes by sometimes. It's crazy to me that we're already halfway through 2021. I feel like I was just waiting for 2021 to get here, and now it's halfway gone. It seems like life just flies by, doesn't it? It doesn't really seem to matter what stage of life you're in either. I, I think it's a common thing. Whether you're in middle school, whether you just graduated college, whether you just went to your 20-year reunion, or whether you just retired, I think at every point we can stop and be like, how did we get here so fast? How did it all go by so quickly? And along the way, as, as life is speeding by, we always come up with our our ideas of what would be best, what would help. If, if life just slowed down a bit, if I could just slow the pace of life down, then I would be doing better. Things would go well. And yet here we are on the other side of a pandemic that quite literally slowed the pace of life down for us for a stretch. And it didn't provide the soul-satisfying rest that it promised slower pace didn't prove to be the solution and now we're we're just back to filling our schedules life is just picked right back up traveling vacations meetings sports we're back to going and it's not just that though even through all of this the troubles of life never stopped sickness cancer pain sleepless kids loneliness anxiousness any host of problems this journey of life can feel a lot, feel like a lot. It can feel like a lot of trouble, a lot of discontentment, a lot of weariness. Friends, our text this morning is Psalm 23. It's a psalm that's familiar to us. But it's a psalm that reminds us that in a fast-paced world that's full of trouble, God is actively involved in caring for his people. It's a psalm that reminds us and shows us how the good shepherd leads us through this journey of life, from the field all the way through the valley and all the way home. It's a psalm that reminds us of the comfort, rest, and contentment that's found in the presence of our all-sufficient God. And so with that, look at Psalm 23 with me. The Lord says this, a psalm of David the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Before we dive in and walk through this text, set up a bit of context here. Psalm 23 is, as you might have figured out, a psalm of David. We don't know the exact situation or circumstance of David's life at the time of writing this, but we know that David is a, a shepherd king. In fact, he's kind of the quintessential shepherd when we think of a shepherd. 
But here we see the quintessential shepherd going to his shepherd, being shepherded. In, in many ways, these, these words of David even look past David. They're spoken in, in a way that, that they apply to him, but they seem to anticipate another shepherd king to come. It, it's kind of like if my two-year-old son, Miles, were to, to wear one of my shirts. It would, it would get the job done. It fits in the sense that it covers him and keeps him warm, but it's clear that it's meant for someone bigger. Someone else will fill that out. That's how David's words read, because they're anticipating Christ. They're, they're written in such a way that we could say they're both David's experience and Christ's experience. David's speaking of his own experience, anticipating the life of Christ to come. And maybe you're, you're wondering, well, why does that matter? Like, why do we need to know this at the outset? Well, it, it matters because Christ lived this psalm out so, so that those of us who are sheep, that is, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have placed our confidence, our trust, our hope in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, can pray this psalm with the same confidence as David. If we're in Christ, then this psalm is ours to pray as well. Just as God shepherded David through life, and just as God shepherded the son while on earth, God is shepherding you and I today. Jesus even tells us this in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. This psalm is sweet because Christ experienced all of this, and it proved true in his life. The Father faithfully shepherded him, and he's now shepherding us. And so with this as a backdrop, we're going to walk through our text this morning in just four points. They'll be on the screen. Try not to be distracted by how good they look. Uh, sorry, a little quick on the slides this week. Our first point this morning from verse 1a, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And the psalm begins with our subject, the Lord. And maybe you notice in, in the ESV at least, the Lord is in all caps or, or small caps there, which is used to indicate that the word used here for the Lord is Yahweh. This isn't just any God, nor is it a plea from someone who's unaware of who God is. This is addressed to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. This is the name God gave to his people. It's the name that his people associate with his character. In fact, God tied his name, Yahweh, to his character. They're inseparable his name and who he is go hand in hand. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God made himself known to his people by declaring this. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who David is referring to. The God who loves his people with, as the, the Jesus Storybook Bible so aptly puts, a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This is David's shepherd. And, and notice the language here. David does not say the Lord is a shepherd or even the Lord is the shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. This is such personal language. The Lord is my shepherd. David knows that the Lord's covenant promises 
are true, not just for all his people as a whole, but for each individual believer, for him personally. Through the chaos of his life, he trusts and is confident that the Lord is with him, that the Lord is for him. And friends, if you are in Christ, you can pray this with the same confidence of David. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. Actively involved in tending to his sheep, in caring for them. The Lord is my shepherd. Of all the metaphors that he could have used, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David uses shepherd here. And he would have known well from his experience in the fields as a shepherd himself that the livelihood of sheep really are entirely dependent on the shepherd. A shepherd's responsible for provision, for guidance, for protection. Shepherds were in the thick of it with them, walking with them, leading them, guarding them. And as one author said, if if you can imagine the landscape of ancient Israel, this was no easy task. Grazing land was not abundant. Shepherds would have to guide their flock to the places with enough grass for their sheep. The shepherd needed to know where to go, the best route to take, and the pace at which to drive the flock so as to not wear them out. There would likely be dry and difficult terrain to cross, as well as untold dangers from wild beasts and thieves along the way. But the shepherd guides and leads and protects just as the Lord does. Which is what we see in our next point, the Lord provides. The Lord provides, verse 1b to 3a. The Lord provides. Look at the second half of verse 1 again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The phrasing of this can sometimes be, be a little unclear if, if we're not familiar with the Bible. Why would I not want him? This sounds great. But, but the idea here is this. The Lord is, is my shepherd, therefore I have all that I need. I will not be wanting anything. I will have everything that I need supplied for me. And and this remarkable statement of contentment is is further illustrated by how the shepherd provides. The, The text literally reads, In pastures of grass he makes me to lie down. Upon waters of rest he guides me. He revives my life. The the emphasis in in these three phrases is on abundant provision and rest. Philip Keller, who worked as a a shepherd for eight years, wrote a book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And he says, when sheep lie down, it is because they are safe and satisfied. A shepherd is actively involved in caring for them in every facet of their lives so that they might rest. The shepherd wards off predators and flies and leads them to green pastures where they can eat and be satisfied. I think that this is the the picture this this psalm is painting for us of of restful satisfaction and contentment, which is furthered by the second phrase. He, He leads me beside still waters, or as you might have a footnote in your Bible, he leads me beside waters of rest. And I like the translation of waters of rest because it captures not only the provision of the Lord, but of the the tender care of the shepherd. In fact, one author points out the word translated rest is actually a noun in the Hebrew and is the last word in the phrase waters of rest. It implies that rest is actually the setting for the waters and the place in which they're found. 
In the Old Testament, this same word for rest is used to speak of Canaan, of the, the promised land, and to speak of God's dwelling place. Where God is, there is rest. And I think the same idea is being applied here. Yahweh himself is the place of rest in view. I think verse 6 corroborates that. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Where God is is where rest is found. And so the ultimate place of rest for God's people is God himself. Friends, this picture that's being painted here is one of, of abundant life given to God's people. He, he provides good green pastures, lush with food. He leads us beside waters of rest. And, and these waters of rest would be, be a setting for the shepherd to not only water and wash the sheep, but it's also a place where he could clean and mend their wounds, where he could literally restore or revive their lives. The good shepherd mends the wounds of his sheep. Friends, this is the picture of the Lord that we're given. This is your God. This is how he cares for his sheep. And unless this just be abstract comfort, right? Theoretical comfort. That's great. He's a shepherd. It's nice to think of green pastures and waters of rest, but life's happening. <laughs> unless this just be, be that, be theoretical. Let me remind you that Christ came to, to give us this abundant and restful life. John 10 says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the, the perfect son of God, came and lived among his people so that sinful, rebellious, wayward sheep might have life and have it abundantly. How did Christ do this? Well, by laying down his life for the sake of his sheep. Jesus was crucified. He took the punishment that we deserve. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. And then he was raised to life on the third day so that we might enter these sweet green pastures, that we might have abundant life if we turn to him in faith, that our lives might be restored, our lives might be revived, and that Christ might be our provision. He's the bread of life. That Christ is our, our living water. He's our rest. And friends, I know this can still sound like theoretical comfort. Rest is found in Christ. Rest is found in God. Wonderful. I've even been encouraged in that when I'm feeling weary. Brother, just rest in Christ. Thank you. How? Right? Isn't that the question? Yes, there's rest found in Christ, but what does that mean? How do we do that? And I, I by no means have this figured out, but let me just offer a few points and, and principles here on resting in Christ. What, what does this look like? What does this mean? To rest in Christ. A couple of these came from a pastor, Philip Nation, pastors in Florida, and a couple of others are, are from, from myself here. Let me just offer these to you as, as encouragements and as kind of a, a principle for what it looks like to rest in Christ. First, resting in Christ requires spiritual discipline. 
Resting in Christ requires spiritual discipline. Rest is, is a spiritual act in which you must say that you trust God beyond what you can accomplish for yourself. It requires discipline on your part to stop your mind from spinning on about what needs to be done and to slow down. In resting, focus on God and your relationships rather than your task list. Put those things aside. Open up the word. Pray. Rest. Second, resting in Christ requires faith. It requires faith. Laying down the tools, shutting down the computer, walking away from the project for a day is an act of faith. For a restless people focused on achieving a reputation and a salary, resting requires faith. It's faith that God is the one who provides. Our needs are met not by sheer determination and might, but by our gracious and good shepherd who will meet our needs. Third, resting in Christ requires recounting and remembering. Requires recounting and remembering. Resting in Christ is trusting in the specific promises he has given to care for us, to work for our good, that he's in control. It looks like remembering that because of Christ's work on our behalf, we can lay down all of our efforts, all of our attempts to attain righteousness on our own. It, it looks like putting aside all of our makeshift tries at earning. And it looks like finding peace in knowing, as Psalm twenty-two thirty-one says, he has done it. It is finished. It's not righteousness we can attain on our own. It is a righteousness attained through Christ and what Christ has done on the cross. And we can rest in that by recounting the gospel, by remembering these truths. Fourth, resting in Christ requires humble recognition that we are finite. Requires humble recognition that we are finite. The very act of resting, of, of taking a nap or, or sitting in solitude is a recognition that we cannot go endlessly. We can't just keep going. We are finite. We're limited. We can enjoy physical rest as an act of spiritual worship in acknowledging that we're made, we're creatures, we're needy. We cannot go without stopping because only God can do that, and we are not God. And so we can rest as an act of spiritual worship. But to balance that, <laughs> resting in Christ requires more than merely relaxing. Rest can mean lying on a hammock or taking a good vacation, but it's more than that. Those things in and of themselves will not provide the soul-satisfying rest that they promise. Another vacation is not what's going to do it. Rest has to do with walking away from what the world offers up as our means of existence. Your work isn't your life. It's not your identity. It's not your eternal hope. Jesus is. Taking a break from work will not find the rest that you need. Looking to Christ will. Rest is found in the enjoyment of Christ, in the enjoyment of Christ's people, in the enjoyment of Christ's creation, and in activities that increase your joy. Friends, as you rest, live for what lasts. This is the rest that's offered to us, I think, in this psalm. 
rest that's found in him. Rest that sustains and brings us all the way home. Rest that doesn't require another vacation after you get back from your first one. And not only does the Lord provide us with this rest, but even as we rest, he guides us. Our third point, look at verses three and four again. Second half of three says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord guides. The Lord guides. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, th- this could mean righteousness in a, in a moral sense. When we, we follow Jesus as our shepherd, he teaches us to live righteously. He teaches us to live godly lives. The word righteous could also refer to God's righteousness, that he will do right by his sheep as he leads them. I think rather than choosing which one does it mean, I, I think it likely has both of them wrapped up in this. That's to say that the Lord lays out good works for his people to walk in. He leads us in moral rightness as we follow him. That, that aligns with what we know sheep should do. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. They live like me. They do what I do. There's moral righteousness there. And I think this means that God is righteous in the way he leads. The road he leads us on is best. It is the best, most direct route from here to our heavenly home. And I think this may be the harder truth to deal with, if we're honest. The road God leads us on is best. Period. Full stop. The road God leads us on is best. Think about your life. Think about the hardships and trials that you have faced, that you've walked through or are walking through, the pain and the loss. Friends, this is the best path according to our all-wise, all-sufficient God. Can you say that with full confidence? That's hard. It's hard to. But we trust in the character of the one who is leading. We trust in the wisdom of the one who is leading. And and I even think the second part of this phrase helps us to grow in this confidence of saying it. Right? Look, he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God is leading us on this path of righteousness, leading us in the way that he deems best, and God has placed his name, his reputation on the line. God grows his people in righteousness and leads us for his namesake, for his glory. And and he can do this because he's the only one worthy of glory and honor in this way. The path that God leads you on is the path that he deems best, not just for you, but for his namesake, for his glory. And so God has staked his reputation on the line with your name. (laughs) I I think this is such a comforting truth. 
This means that God has tied our name to his. What we do, the trajectory of our lives as his sheep is tied to his reputation. So he has a vested interest in seeing it through to the end. He has a a vested interest in being actively involved in leading you and guiding you all the way home because his name is on the line. Friends, God is zealous for his own glory. He's committed to upholding the integrity of his name. And that's good news for us. That's good news for us. He's not going to take you to a certain point and say, ah, I'm just going to let them finish the rest of the way out on their own. He's tied his name to his people. It's such a comfort that God is committed to his name and that I'm associated with his name. His name is at stake in my life. And God is for God, and that's a good thing for us. (laughs) God being for his glory means God being for his people. To work all things together for our good and for his namesake, his glory. And, And this is true even through the valley of the shadow of death. We have no need to fear evil because he's, he's with us. He's present. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Just stop for a second. Have you been reminded of that simple fact lately? God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is present. David is convinced of this truth. He he doesn't say, I feel you are with me. He he may not feel particularly close in this moment. We don't really know. But he knows that God is with him. And how much more so can we say that on this side of the cross as those who have the spirit of God dwelling inside of us? We may feel distant from the Lord, but we can lean on this bedrock truth. You are with me. The Lord is with his people. And this dispels fears. Right? Who can be against us if this is true? If the creator and sustainer of the universe is with me, is present right now with you, what trial, what hardship, what what could you possibly face That is too much for him. Not only that, but but his presence in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death reminds us that even in those dark times, they're purposeful times. If he's with us through that trail, that means there must be a purpose for him being there. There must be a purpose that he is taking us that way, that he's leading us in that way, that he deems this is the best way for me to go. In fact, I I think this psalm reads in such a way that we must connect the Lord's rod and staff that provide comfort with the valley of the shadow of death and the path of righteousness. There's a little gap that kind of separates three and four, and I, I wish it wasn't there. I wish we could sandwich it together. Because I think oftentimes the path of righteousness is through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know that those are separate ideas here. 
The, the rod and staff of the Lord as, as comfort help us understand this. You see, a shepherd's rod and staff were used for correction and protection and guidance. And, and we even see throughout Scripture this language of rod often associated with the discipline of the Lord. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Likewise, in Hebrews 12, as, as Ed read earlier, it reminds us that the Lord's discipline that comes in the forms of trials of various kinds is actually a gracious thing from a loving father, correcting and disciplining his children, fitting them for the, the home to come. And th this is how David can view it as a comfort. He recognizes that oftentimes the path of righteousness is through the valley of the shadow of death. But he knows that God is present through all of it, guiding us as a good shepherd does, not letting us stray to the wolves or fall off the ledges of the path. He's present every step of the way, leading his sheep all the way home. But, but again, how does the presence of God actually help me when I'm in darkness? Again, we don't want this to just be theoretical. How, how does this actually help me when I'm in darkness? I, I love what one author wrote. He, he says, his presence helps in this way. We know that Jesus Christ walked through the ultimate valley of the shadow of death, the darkness of condemnation and wrath, a fate that should have landed on us. The result is that in our temporary dark valleys, we can know that despite our sin and failures, God will bring us sanctified and holy to be with him forever, where we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, where all the mess and darkness of our lives will be found to have worked to make us more holy and happy than we otherwise could have been. I love that last sentence. Where we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, where all the mess and darkness of our lives will be found to have worked to make us more holy and happy than we otherwise could have been. That's how the path of righteousness and the valley of the shadow of death can be one and the same. Because he's leading us through to sanctify his people, to fit us for the kingdom to come, to fit us for the home in which he is preparing us. Shepherd leads us from the fields through the valley, which fits us and makes us ready to go home. And that's, that's our last point. The Lord is my host, verses 5 and 6. The, the imagery of this psalm shifts here from the, the Lord is David's shepherd to the Lord is David's host. He, he's preparing a table for him. In the presence of his enemies, he, he's preparing the house, if you will, getting it ready for him to come and to dwell in forever with him. And David really seems to be, be writing in such a way that he's, he's looking to the future. He's looking ahead. He even seems to be looking beyond himself here. The, the first part, a table for one anointed with oil in the presence of his enemies, brings to mind Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2 kind of hang as a, a banner over this whole section of Psalms. They introduce it, introduce the whole book to us. And in Psalm 2, we read of these kings and rulers of the earth that are, are plotting against God and against God's anointed. And as they're plotting, God warns, and he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we come to, to the scene where, where God's anointed is being seated at a table in the presence of his enemies and I have to believe that these are very much the same enemies here. These kings and rulers of the earth who are plotting and scheming against the Lord and his anointed are now present to witness this victory celebration of God's chosen one. This is, this is all celebratory here. He's seated at a table of victory, a table of triumph, a table on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death, and his enemies are witnessing him enjoy the splendors of his victory. Everything in verse 5 is celebratory. His cup is overflowing. The Lord has prepared a table as a host, and, and it reminds us of, of the banquet table we look forward to together, what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation, where we will feast together in victory with our God and Savior. The Lord is my host, and he is preparing a table for us. We have the same hope of the future as David here. He then declares, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And the language here is so beautiful. Goodness and mercy, or, or what could be translated as steadfast love. The, the very character and attributes associated with Yahweh shall follow me. And, and really, this word for follow me could be translated as, as pursue or overtake me. It, it's a word that's often used in, in hunting language, a pursuit of a hunt where you're going to overcome what you're going after. And so, so literally, the goodness and steadfast love of God will pursue him and catch him for the rest of his days and keep him. It will overtake him. How, how will this be? Well, David is, is envisioning this future day when when he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, when, when the Lord's goodness and mercy and steadfast love overtake him, catch, catch him, and keep him for all eternity in the house of the Lord. And the blessing of, of being in the house of the Lord is, is being with the Lord. Lest we forget that and we think the good part of heaven will be all the things we're freed from, let's remember that the blessing of being in the house of the Lord is that we are with him. It's his presence. That's where true rest is found. We know he's with us in the valley. That brings us comfort today. But that's not all the comfort that's offered here. There is this, this hope of a glorious future in the presence of God. His goodness and steadfast love overtaking us. And we'll be welcomed into his house forever. Seated at his table now and forevermore. Friends, this psalm shows us how God is actively involved in caring for his people, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forever, for eternity. The, the rest that's offered here in this psalm is not just for right now. It's a rest that won't end. Unlike any rest that we could try and find through our own schemes of changing our calendars or going away again. 
It's a rest in the Lord that lasts today, tomorrow, and forever. And, and friends, it's a rest we can count on because we've seen it come true in David's life and we've seen it come true in Christ's life. I, I alluded to it earlier, but these words are about Jesus. He lived this psalm out. Jesus, who though being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that, that is, being born in the likeness of sheep. He was shepherded by the Father, counted on the Father for his provision and guidance, walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but he did not fear, for his Father was with him all the way through to the other side. Even the Father's rod and staff comforted him. Hebrews 2 tells us that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to do those, to, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The father comforted him through his rod and staff, through his trials and suffering. The Lord was comforting our Savior. And then he restored his soul. He, he quite literally revived him. He brought him back to life. And he pre prepared a table for his anointed in the presence of his enemies, just as Psalm 2 told us. All who didn't heed the warning of God are now seeing the Son, seated at the table, the anointed one, exalted. All things are given to the Son. His cup overflows. And he will spend the rest of his days in the presence of the Father at the right hand forever and ever and ever, ruling and reigning, victorious as our God and King. And friends, the reason we can pray this psalm is because Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death in our place. He did all of this. He, he died the death that we deserve, and he was restored to life on the third day so that now we can pray this psalm together as our own. We can pray this psalm as our own because we're in Christ. Our life is now hidden in his. We can pray with the same confidence as Jesus because the promises of God are now to us in Christ. Friends, this is good news that can ground you even in the midst of a fast-paced life full of troubles. God is actively involved in caring for his people. He is with us. He is my shepherd. He is my provider. He is my guide. He is my host. Friends, we can rest in him. 